Welcome to the Startup CPG Podcast. Startup CPG is a launchpad and community for small brands. We host interactive events and serve as a resource for insights and expertise to build a brand that's better for people and better for the planet. We're really lucky to have Gregorio Santiago on our podcast today. Gregorio spent the last few years discovering the most innovative entrepreneurs and brands across wine, spirits, non-alcoholic drink categories. We're going to talk today about what are the three main things you need to be paying attention to to really make sure your brand gets out of your head and into messaging that really resonates with your investors or potential investors, hopefully your investors, and your customers, the people who are actually going to be consuming your product. As a beverage geek and a product developer, it's so amazing to talk about how the product was made. What are all the nuances of the flavors? But the reality is someone just wants to know when am I gonna drink it, how am I gonna drink it, and like with who? Gregorio has expertise from all sides of the equation. He's spent years in the wine industry at E&J Gallo, started his own brand, so he's created these innovative products himself. And he'll be telling us some successes and failures and, and lessons he's learned along the way. I think there's there's been almost like a little bit of a loss of focus in the fundamentals of business. People have been so focused on, let's just solve the problem at all costs necessary, and let's just make sure that we build this to a size at all costs necessary. Really excited to share this knowledge with you, and I had so much fun chatting with Gregorio for this podcast. So Gregorio, tell us what you're up to. Well, I think that's, that's the update that I have for you. Um, I'm actually leaving Distilled Ventures to pursue another beverage company. This will be my third, and it's an exciting opportunity, which we'll get into later. Uh, what I was doing at Distilled Ventures, essentially, you know, just a quick summary for everyone listening. I've been in the beverage industry for about 15 years, started off as a sommelier. Uh, oh, wow. Yep. Cool. Started off as a sommelier, worked in the wine industry and sales, worked with an importer out of DC called Tradewinds, uh, managed their regional accounts. Our portfolio was really primarily based around Spanish and Argentine wines. So like my first love in the beverage space was really Spanish, Cava and Riojas. And that was like my first introduction to this mm. space. And then it was just a dark tunnel from there. Rioja was one of my first favorite wines as well. <laughs> I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, for the price, it's some of the best out there to this date. And it's still amazing to me how hard it is to find good Riojas in the U.S. market. Like, it just makes no sense when they can come in for such a good quality and price. We'll have to have another conversation about wines. <laughs> well, it comes full circle. It totally comes full circle. Mm -hmm. After that, I joined ENJ Gallo, pretty large wine manufacturing production sales company. Was part of their creative team as a project manager and then helped out with their new product development. So essentially helped with some really big launches, right? Going from like a small importer to a really massive company and having the experience there. Yeah, for sure. You'll get, you'll hear a little bit of passion, right? I think people that are in the CBG, we, we are passionate folks. We're passionate entrepreneurs. And so to kind of reiterate, right, like I've, you know, you asked what my current role is and, and this transition, I think it, it does give justice to you know, where my arc has, has gone from this first love of wine and my wine studies and learning how to sell wine in a really competitive market to joining in and not really understanding how to produce wines really from ideation to product, to launch, to scale, to then 
going off on my own for the first time. You know your wines and spirits. You have extensive experience in the industry from starting out as someone who knows the ins and outs of the flavor as a sommelier, getting your hands dirty in the business to even starting your own companies. That is correct. And now mentoring other entrepreneurs in their journey. So you've seen lots of product launches from uh, large companies as they launch new products to smaller companies like your own. And now you're going to launch another company as well. The reason I'm, I'm sharing all this is one under nose is being on both sides of the equation of really being focused on the product and also the other side of how does one build a brand. And then lastly, these past year, I've been essentially the director of discovery and acceleration at Distilled Ventures. What does that mean? <laughs> right? It's like, what does that mean? Essentially, it's business development, right? Building a good pipeline and providing support for our portfolio companies. If someone told me as a kid, I could grow up and be the director of innovation and discovery, I think I would have had a much different career path. <laughs> One kind of creates certain roles, I guess. Um, totally. But really, at the end of the day, it's it, it's business development for a venture fund that focuses on spirit brands. And, you know, the Still Ventures, we pride ourselves on really helping the next wave of beverage spirit founders come to market, accelerate and really achieve excellence. You know, we really have a an incredible portfolio of great founders and through that experience you know a lot of what i was doing is meeting with different founders all over the u.s looking at their pitch decks hearing their stories and and things over and over again and there's this one thing that i think as an investor and you're looking at these pitch stories and a part of that is your fundraising story and your financial story but the thing that i want to really hone in on is when you tell your story and you're talking about your project as an entirety, it's where do you spend the most focus? And the difference between telling a story with the product in focus and really with the mission or brand in focus. And there's a clear difference between the two. And the reason I'm calling this out is because there's been so many times I have come across a, a, you know, a phenomenal entrepreneur who's coming in um, really excited about a project, super passionate about the product, but he gets stuck on the product itself. Yeah. And he doesn't go beyond explaining why the product should exist in the first place. Totally. What lights you up about the wine and spirits industry? Why didn't you go into food or something else? It is part of food, mm. but it's also part of culture. And for me, what I always found fascinating, like growing up, my father was a chef. Oh, wow. And and he also collected wine and spirits and it was kind of part of this. And I later found out that my grandfather was also a distiller. Mm-hmm. He was a pharmacist on a chain of pharmacies, but he happened to also be a distiller of his own ranch. So he made Brazilian cachaça, which is a, a Brazilian rum, if you will. Caipirinha. The caipirinha is correct. So I've always had this passion for, for beverage. Like at a young age, I was fascinated by wine at like the age of five. And, mm-hmm. and it just kind of made a natural progression. I graduated school in a business degree. And I was like, what do I do with all this knowledge, right? Finance and marketing. What's the industry that excites me? And I was at the time, I was living in the South of France doing um, a study abroad program and really got to see how the wine business was there, right? Like the South of France is essentially your innovation labs. Mm -hmm. All the young winemakers will go down there to produce their first wines. 
And so there will be wacky blends and wacky varietals in this whole space. And I really love the kind of energy and ferocity of, of the industry down there. And so when I came back to the U.S., I was like, all right, this is where I want to start off. I want to start off in wine and follow at least something that I fell in love and then apply these business language and these Excel sheets and, you know, how to actually run a P&L and all this stuff that I just spent four years digesting and applying it into real life practicality. Yeah, food and spirits and wine are deeply personal. And I share a similar sentiment. It's like a lifestyle. Investors probably also really connect personally to these things. Is that your experience? Look, I'm I'm a beverage geek, <laughs> to simply put it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us that are like <laughs> entrepreneurs in this space are also kind of foodies and beverage geeks ourselves. So it's this little ecosystem that we all kind of we're, we're passionate about it because it, it goes beyond, right? It goes beyond the actual product is what is this product really giving us? And for me, it's always been about connection, right? Yeah. That's why, that's why when you asked more, why drinks versus food is like, well, it's great to get a meal and you sit down and you have this family moment and you can share this shared experience, but drinks has this interesting ceremony behind it. Mm. No matter what the drink is. There's a cheers, there's a toast, there's let's just go grab a quick cup of coffee, there's oh come over for tea, it's tea time, we're gonna have conversation. There's always this like it's it's hard to have a conversation with a plate of food in your mouth, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're sipping a drink, you're able to to enjoy each other's company and, and progress in a really interesting conversations. And depending on what the liquid is, the conversation goes in really fun directions. Mm -hmm. You said, I'm a beverage geek and <laughs> other entrepreneurs in this space are that as well. And so I think that's kind of what you want to talk about today, how to take beverage geekiness and translate it to the not beverage geek, because the reality is that's the person who's going to be buying your product, not necessarily the beverage geek, but the one who wants to feel connected, wants to experience those rituals and traditions and, and share with their friends and family. And I think that's that goes back into the the conversation. As a beverage geek and a product developer, it's so amazing to talk about how the product was made, what vineyard and block it came from, how much time you spent processing and aging it, what are all the nuances of the flavors. But the reality is someone just wants to know when am I going to drink it, how am I going to drink it, and like with who. Yeah. You're on your way to founding your third company? That's correct. That's so cool. Can you tell us about the first one that you founded and, and what were some successes and lessons that you learned? So when I left Gallo, uh, I drove up to Seattle to a distillery up north and learned to distill with the head distiller there because I wanted to create my own gin. I fell in love with, with gin in Spain. I've always had this idea of like, man, it would be amazing to create a completely wild harvested gin. Wow. So I went up, spent the summer with them, learned to distill, came back down to the Bay Area and worked with Treasure Island Distillery, which is like a small little boutique-y white labeling house. And they had a pretty nice still setup and everything else. And I worked with them to conceptualize this, this wild harvest gin, like the idea of, of expressing what the land has to offer in a single vintage gin. I'm sold. What I didn't, what I didn't know, what I didn't know when I started this process is how labor intensive it really is to go through this. I worked with Pascal Barter, which is like he's one of the most um, foremost forager out of LA to help me 
source and find where I can harvest. Like, how do, where do you find wild juniper berries in California? Oh, wow. Which is the main ingredient engine. And then we had manzanita berries and all these other things. I think, I mean, honestly, I think the guys who've done the best job has been Taurus Spirits and um, St. George, who've done a Tuar based thing. But I wanted to be like full, a hundred percent, all completely wild harvested, and then so it was labor intensive process over two years of collecting everything we need. And then when I, you know, as a finance guy, I ran through my Excel sheet and I looked at my P, like my my cogs, and I was like, "Oof, this doesn't look like a real sustainable business." Um, so I ended up just making a first batch, sold it to friends at cost, and ended up selling the recipe to another friend in in the Bay Area. If you don't mind my asking, what was cost? Really high. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like like $45, $50 at cost. Okay, for a bottle of gin? I mean, I guess what you're looking to pay for a bottle of gin that's $45 experience. No, let me let me run some numbers. So so in the US, there's a three-tier system for distribution. For those that don't know, it means that it has to go through a distributor in the middle while it hits a retailer. Okay. So a $50 bottle of gin at a retail shop that you're buying from has a 30% markup. Okay. So it actually wholesales for probably around $30 or something a bottle. But what the manufacturer actually sells to that wholesaler is probably around like the $15, $20 range. Mm-hmm. And that cogs for that like COGS, this is the cost per unit there, is roughly about like half, if not a little bit less than half. So a bottle of gin that you spend $50 on probably has a COGS around like $9, $10, everything included bottle and, and labeling. Got it. So your bottle, if it costs $50 to make and you sell it wholesale for twice that, that's $100 and then it gets sold at a 30% markup, that's a $130 bottle of gin. Exactly. Got it. <laughs> And I, I mean, I'll be, I'll be uh, humble. I don't think it was worth $130. <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Pretty unique. It was a good gin. 100% forage. No one, no one has that really. And, and that was the kind of the idea was the idea to create a vintage style of gin. Because the idea is it's collected over a season and it's yearly marked. Mm. The same way that a wine is, is vintage, right? Oh, it was a good year. The idea was to have a gin that people could collect and share and experience. Like, I wonder what the Californian Sierra Nevada tasted like in, or I mean, 2000, and I think when I started this project was 2017. Well, like you can, you can capture that. It's a time capsule almost. And because it's a spirit, it's, it will last forever. Wow. Yeah. And so are you sharing publicly your next venture? Yes. Or at least... Part of it, yes. Like I think the the main thing is um, we're working on bringing a Brazilian sparkling to the market. What is that? Brazilian sparkling wine, which is probably one of my favorite things to talk about, uh, because the world has no idea that Brazil produces amazing sparkling wine. Cool. What are you going to do differently for this company through? what you've learned in your last two companies and also through co- what you've seen with lots of incoming early entrepreneurs who want to get their product out to the world. Um, what have you seen and learned and, and how are you going to approach the branding and the brand strategy for your next company? What lessons are you going to take so with the, you? three biggest lessons that I, that I carry forth, uh, particularly from this last uh-huh. two years, from my last venture and with my experience at DV. First and foremost, 
it's the importance of your gross margin. Like gross margin is the life of your business and you really have to understand in, in minute details what that is, what that was yesterday, what that is today and where you're going with it, right? How are you going to be able to achieve the gross margin percentages that you're targeting? So this is taking into account every cost that goes into producing your product and marketing your product and everything, just knowing. So your gross margin is really just your revenue minus COGS. That's it. That's, that's, Mm -hmm. and so COGS is whatever goes in the cost of goods sold. So it's your bottle, it's your ingredients, it's like finished goods is what we consider your COGS. And that margin there is Mm -hmm. really what's going to give you, um, your ability to go after, you know, your marketing spend. Mm -hmm. And, and so so having a really healthy gross margins means you have a shot, a a good shot at a really good um, business. And it's like business 101, healthy gross margins means you have space to advertise and promote. That means you have space to overhead. And over time with economies of scales, you'll be able to grow into a profitable business. Hopefully you can get the profit sooner than later without having to sell a bunch of your company for for venture or equity, but that's the foremost. So anytime you're going to have a conversation with an investor or if it's private equity, friends and family or whatever, and they're, they're savvy, right? It's like go in well-prepared to explain the, the fundamentals and generally that dissects into your gross margins. Got it. Did you learn it the hard way? Why is that so important? From my own personal experience, it was, <laughs> look, I created that gin without even really considering. I was so, so passionate. I was going to figure it out how to create this amazing, um, unique gin that I just was looking for just purely innovation. And I'm sure over time, I would have figured out how to make it uh, cost effective. But I, I didn't put focus on, hey, let me actually look at this from building a, a smart business first. Yeah. <laughs> hopes and dreams don't pay your rent exactly and over the last year it's it's not necessarily from the entrepreneurs right it actually came from my conversations with other investors mm. you know when we had the pitches and we had our investment board together it was that was the question all of them normally stuck to or at least that was the couple questions and conversations we had after the entrepreneur left the pitch and we all sat in the round table and say so what did you think they're like, ooh, really love the idea and great brand and all that jazz, but ooh, that, that gross margin isn't quite there where we need it to be. That's what I heard time and time again. And I was like, okay, this is this is the thing. Is there a magic number for gross margin? Like, should it be 50%, 20%? Does it vary from beverage to beverage? Does it vary from industry to industry? How do you figure out that you've got a healthy growth margin? It varies. It varies yeah. from beverage to beverage. It varies from industry to industry. Um, but there are standards. So my recommendation to any on- entrepreneur is go figure out what's, what's industry standard mm-hmm. for you, right? Yeah. If you're doing snack bars, What's industry standard for snack bars? Yeah. Right. There's an industry standard for everything. Fashion, hotels, you know, and particularly with spirits, it's, it's, there's an industry standard for whiskey. There's an industry standard for vodka and, and understanding what those standards are allows you to appropriately build a business. Great. And then see if like, okay, this is, this is reasonable, right? The, what I'm spending here on this product and where we're at is sensible. And it also gives you a sense of, you know, proper planning. Because once you have your margins together, and this is kind of going into the other lesson, the going from product into brand. And how do you build a brand is going to require 
creative. It's going to require a team. It's going to require a culture. And there's a lot of ways to really go about it, right? There's no one right way to do it, but you're going to need capital for it mm-hmm. or it's sweat equity that you're putting in. But even then, it's going to come at some cost to build. And understanding what your margins are allows you to look to how to build the brand. For sure. The next lesson, don't get too caught up in the product. That was a, that's, that's a big lesson that I had to learn over time. Um, the second venture I did was a, was a non-out product where I reverse engineered flavor profiles from beer using botanical extracts. Wow. You said a non-alk product. So a product that doesn't have alcohol, but it might be served alongside other alcoholic beverages. Exactly. I think there's a, there's a new industry trend, uh, you know, if those are familiar with brands like Can Euphoric, Drink mm-hmm. Monday, Seedlib, mm-hmm. Ritual. There's these this new category of non-alcoholic beverages. And so before Seedlip came to the market, about three years before Seedlip came from the UK over to the US, and before this was even a thing here, I created a brand called Botanical Proof. And the whole concept was, yes, you can enjoy a sober drink that is completely full of flavor and still had an effect, right? Like how can you still get a buzz without any fermentation, sugar, or alcohol? Ah, I see. My next question was going to be, okay, so tell me, how is this different from a LaCroix? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's very different from LaCroix. Yeah. You drink this, you get, uh, it's a really strange effect. And what happens, right, what what I learned in the production of this, and this is going back to answering your question around, don't get caught up in the product. I got caught up in the product, right? I got so into this concept of, you know, this beer has to taste just like a beer, but it's using no beer ingredients and it has to have an effect and to create this whole thing. And I kept doing it, but then it never got anybody super excited because there's no context around it, right? It wasn't, well, why are you doing this? And, and where is it going to be served? What's the brand story? I was so focused on just like, let me just solve this product market fit component. Let me get, like solve the problem that I'm trying to solve for myself mm-hmm. in wanting a really unique beverage that can still get me socially engaging and, and playful. Yeah. And sometimes that works, but I'm hearing that that's a long shot. Well, it's a complete long shot, especially when there is not much of a market or an industry. Yeah. Yet, right. Like this is... This is three years before Celia came to the market, which is about two years ago. So this is five years ago where sober September, dry January wasn't in people's vernacular. Mm-hmm. This is this is relatively new trends where people are like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be sober for a month or I'm sober curious. And and this is was what some of um, earlier entrepreneurs were looking at. Like this is what Ben at Seedlip first saw many years ago. He saw this increased demand. It was the same thing with me with and the in the communities in Los Angeles. Time and time again, I was surrounded with people who decided, you know what, for health reasons, I'm just abstaining from drinking, but I still want to have something really interesting. And I, as well as sometimes, even if I, I do work in wine and spirits, I do take significant breaks, month, two months, three months at a time where I'm just completely sober. And it's just by choice and of health. And at those moments, I still want something delicious to drink, right? And so this need has been there for a while. And this, this second venture was attempting to solve that there's a a chronological order in which you launch your advertising campaigns. If you have a new product, you kind of have to make sure people know what it is that you're buying first before you do a limited time offer or do do any of the other marketing secrets. And it sounds like that's just selling products 101 is make sure people know what it is first. 
that's going to be an interesting one for my next venture then. <laughs> I mean, you're the expert here. <laughs> what I find what I find interesting because our our route to market with this Brazilian sparkling is going to be super interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah. There's a lot of different elements for us that that we would love to go and and do the research and engage with the producers of this sparkling wine to be able to create a brand, but the reality is we're unable to at this moment. And so because of these constraints, my goal with this the, this whole brand and the brand experience is going to be built around this feedback component, which is going to be a fascinating um, experiment. It's going to be crazy. If it, it's either going to work really well and and, we'll, and we're going to be really happy with the results, or it's going to be a big flop. Um, <laughs> yeah, wow. We're betting on the latter. And so when you say feedback, you mean customer feedback? Yeah. How does it make them feel? What do they like about it? Exactly. Yeah. What do you get with it? Wow. What is, you know, there's there's a certain expectation you're going to have. And then we want you to share what you liked about the product or didn't like about the product, whatever feedback or reaction you had about it. And and the way that you'll see how we're going to execute on this. People know what they like and they know how to share what they like. And we now live in a space where like no one really wants a brand to come in and tell them how great their brand is or why you should buy us. I think we live in a world now that is we're now able to co-create with with people. You said you have three lessons that you've learned. Mm -hmm. We've covered two of them. What's the third? Third is probably the most generic answer one can get, but it's really the power of narratives. How one crafts and tells a story is really what all of this is about. And how does one craft and tell a story? With a good story arc, with a beginning, a middle, an end, and a reason why it all exists. Got it. What's an example of a really good story arc? In telling one's brand story, um, let, me, let me think of this one really quick. Sure, take your time. You know, I'm, I'm going to share one that I actually really enjoy, um, and it's completely new. Okay, yeah, go for it. This is Melanie just launched Drink Gaia. It's drinkdia.com. See, it's a new non-alcoperitif. Gaia, like the goddess of the earth? Yeah, but it's spelled G-H-I-A. And it just launched like literally last week. Wow. When you open up the website, I appreciate the way that she's constructed the story. Right? As you go through, you, you get this, this sensorial experience of the packaging, the brand. And you're not quite sure exactly what it is. And then she goes into explaining what it is and how it is. And really quickly, the flow of the site of like, okay, I, I want to try it. How do I try it? it? It makes it just an easy invitation. So even like the, there's a way to tell a brand story, even through the way that you engage in a website where traditionally most spirit companies will just have, here's our product, here's your location that's made, um, here are some recipes. Hmm. And it brings you back to the ritual of why you're drinking these things. Exactly. You know, I think another great brand that, that, that does this really well, especially in the digital frontier, is House. I think a lot of people in the Bay Area are familiar with this brand, Drink House, H-A-U-S. Um, you know, their recent website launch, um, I don't remember when they've done this. Um, they've had a couple of iterations, but their recent one is like, you get it, like they completely paint you the, the scenery of you in a communal setting and a friend's party or whatever it is, but it feels like you already you already know, right? Like, oh, this is totally the place that I'd be drinking something like this. Mm -hmm. and so they provide that as part of their story of like the emotion and feeling 
around the occasion of what the experience is going to provide. Yeah. You already put yourself in those places, right? And it's almost like those old Coca-Cola commercials, right? You put yourself in the smile and the person holding and drinking that really cold Coca-Cola, even when it was like the 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 holiday commercials, if we all remember those, the polar bear. Mm-hmm. You, you you get the emotion of the holidays through this these sceneries of joy that they kind of pronounce to these. Even if you don't like Coke or or whatever the liquid, it's like just the the way they've brought that messaging together. You know, that's what I'm talking about is the occasion and the and the space of which one puts themselves in the experience. Mm-hmm. Nostalgia seems to be a, a no brainer. I forgot the word I was going to use. <laughs> um, common, I think, is a is a is a common way to. Yeah, for sure. Tug at the heartstrings. Yeah. Uh, what are some other common feelings that you've seen companies really uh, tie together? I'm also wondering, like, what doesn't work so well? When there's just not much there, really. When there's, um, in terms of a story, mm-hmm. yeah, there's just, it's just a great product. And that's really it, right? And if it's just a great product, in, in essence, it's kind of become the commodity over time. What do you mean? There's nothing that really holds it into its moment, right? No matter how great the product is, if, if there's no relationship to it, there's no differentiating factor to it, if there's no way that one can tie an experience to it then it's just a great product and the great products are fine right let's talk about like some of the best meals you've had in your mm-hmm. life and how it draws up a memory and all that jazz but that's kind of that's it you actually have that one great whiskey but there's no association to it so there's no continuation of that story versus like if you remember you know the jameson you had with your grandfather and had it with your father over time and now you're going to share it with your son there's something really special in that and that continuation, that that resonance, or that yeah, there's something there's something really special about the story yeah. that people connect to more than the science or the quality or the way it was made. Even even brands, I think, that do highlight the way that it was made, if they're doing it really well, their story about the way it's made appeals to something that you're feeling, right? I'm thinking about products that mm-hmm. um, talk about sustainability or empowerment, right? They're like, hey, we're sourcing this ingredient in this way, not because it's better for the world or better for the planet, but because you care about it. And here's why you care. Exactly. Yeah, those are the ones that, that really get us, right? And I think that in terms of like the lessons that I'm drawing forth for this next venture and the things that I also mentor, sure. and I think one thing I kind of want to go back to, right? It's a funny thing. The power, there's a power of narrative. There's a difference between brand and product. We get that. You know, there's, there's good ways to be able to do that. And it's just like, mm-hmm. it's just a, like these are just notes to just remember that. But it's, it's that gross margin combined with the, the power of a narrative, which is essentially what I consider what I call financial storytelling. Mm. Yeah. And this is, a, this is another thing that I think I, I will guide entrepreneurs um, that I've mentored over the past in it's, it's generally that one slide on your pitch deck, right? Where you have your financials and everyone's excited for the hockey stick, right? Like tell me your sales going to go up. The reality, what investors are really looking for is how are you controlling your burn and how are you going to spend your AMP and why? What's AMP? Ooh, good question. It's a uh, advertisement <laughs> and promotion. 
Sorry, there's so many like okay. little little terms in this. No, all good. That's my that's my role here is to ask those questions. <laughs> uh, advertisement and promotion, like that's what you control. Okay. Right. You don't know where your business is going to go or when it's going to scale up to the whatever revenue size. Yeah, and burn rate also. That's how fast you go through your money. Particularly your overhead, right? And your overhead is going to include your payroll and kind of your general administrative stuff. So whatever your cost of your softwares, your Generally, it's all the expenses that isn't a part of your cost of goods or advertising and promotion. Okay. And your advertising and promotion, if you're going to break that down, is going to be your social media, your PR, anything that kind of goes into that marketing budget. That activity is going to directly impact the increase in sale. So that's what we call advertising and promotion. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so the idea is to split between advertising and promotion and, and your over general overhead or cost so that you have a good sense between the two because those are the two buckets you're going to be able to control in the beginning of your business got it and when you're raising funds you're raising funds for these two areas right mm -hmm. it's going to be to build the product so whatever it is the expenditure to build the inventory but then it's going to be well how are we going to manage this which is your overhead and then how are you going to promote it which is your aim essentially your marketing got it and that story is is what 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 i'm talking about. there's a narrative to that as well most people are like well here's what we're going to spend our money on you know here's 30 percent of this 30 percent of this 30 percent of this as an investor i want to say well where are you drawing those numbers from as a serial entrepreneur you'll probably be like well in my last three business i understood for me to build from x to, to y i needed to spend this much in my a and p and i needed to have this sort of staff Mm -hmm. There's always a reason behind this, but if you can go ahead and just explain that in a, in a pitch of saying, hey, here's our reasoning behind this, it's a really important thing to, to take a moment at that, at that particular slide in your pitch deck to just go through and just say, hey, we've thought about this and this is how we're thinking about this. Got it. So financial storytelling is explaining how you got those numbers of we're going to spend 30% on this um, and including that in your pitch deck signals to investors that they don't have to go after you and ask. Um, it shows that you're thinking about this, you know, it's important and you, you know what you're doing. Yes. And if you don't, even if you don't know what you're doing, it at least signals to me that you are creating a hypothesis and you're giving reasons to, to which way it can go. And really what you're asking money for is to go test these hypotheses out. And it's not just some shot in the dark of like, oh, we're going to create this product. And then obviously we're going to spend some money on marketing. It's like, no, you've, you've put together a plan. It's like, well, we adequately believe that if we spend X number on this AMP, that we'll be able to generate um, this much in revenue because of these factors, right? You've come in with some research. We've talked to these different entrepreneurs. We've talked to you know other founders and other business leaders to kind of start gauging our, our appropriate targets here. Yes, there is a lot of work that goes into that one little slide. I think the idea here is is the other thing that I also notice within founders. It's a lot of times that slide is prepared by someone else. Oh, wow. Right? Or their financial model is sometimes prepared by someone they've hired, right? Uh -huh. Maybe because they don't have, and I get it, you know, no one really likes to look at Excel sheets for too long. But I, there's something I can't stress enough that even if it's not your, your like a strength of yours, of you don't have a financial background, you don't really know how to build a P&L, it's like building a model is not a thing and you hired someone sit down with them mm -hmm. and build it together because then you really know the ins and outs of your business and really knows the ins and outs of where you're spending every single line item yeah and that's where you can craft the story let's say you're hiring someone 
at an hourly rate, investing in a few extra hours for them to really walk you through the work that they did so that you understand it backwards and forwards and you could present it to a team and be asked questions is really worth the investment. Oh, tremendously so. Mm -hmm. I don't even want to say like, yes, you can hire them to kind of teach you through it. But the reality is you want them to actually like take a moment while they're building it to say, hey, I'm midway through. Here's how I'm building this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, get curious. Don't just don't just hire someone, give them the money, and then get your deliverable back. Deliverable back. Take the time to be involved in the process. Yes, because only then are you really going to see what that what that story arc is really going to be, and you'll find opportunities and weaknesses in in the in the ways that you're constructing your business model. Maybe you're like, well, actually, it doesn't make sense for us to spend this much in, in this line item. Maybe we should reconsider that because this hits our bottom line. And investors want to know, like, at the end of the day, you're building a sustainable, profitable business. Mm-hmm. And I think we've we've gone through a, an era where it's it's always been about, well, just, just solve the problem, get as many consumers as possible, and obviously it's going to generate enough sales to cover it. But we've seen time and time again, there's businesses that have been built years on years on losses. Yeah, They just keep investing more money in these businesses and they're just running at a loss. And they really haven't taken the time to say like, well, how do I actually make this work? And I think now there's there's been a reverse in appetite for investors to be like, actually, we want businesses that, that, can, that can generate good value and can actually run at a profit, right? We're not just going to dump a bunch of money and hopefully that one day they will figure out um, how to appropriately get their, their profit margins correct, right? Like we want to know that these guys can build a profitable business almost from day one and they have a, a pathway to that even if it changes even if they're you know they pivot in so many different directions and like we get this entrepreneurs in this space like there's so many things and different variables that's going to take it but i think there's there's been almost like a little bit of a loss of focus in the fundamentals of business people have been so focused on let's just solve the problem at all costs necessary and let's just make sure that we build this to a size at all costs necessary Mm -hmm. there's kind of three aspects to a brand the numbers the solution and the story you have to be thinking about all three of those things at the same time cool exactly yeah thank you so much gregorio for sharing your insights into what makes uh, a really strong brand and what founders need to make sure they they think about and present a product that resonates. Thanks so much. If you like what you heard and you're interested in learning more, sign up for our newsletter at startupcpg.com. Our newsletter lists all of our events. You can get involved by joining a Zoom happy hour. And we also share industry insights from the Startup CPG community. So you can learn more at startupcpg.com. We definitely want to have you involved. We have an active online community and these networking events are really fun. So perhaps you're even our next podcast guest or you meet your next business partner. 